You're listening to Upside Down Podcast, an ecumenical conversation at the intersection of justice, spirituality, and culture. We've created this space with you in mind. So join us for unscripted conversations on God's Upside Down Kingdom. This is Upside Down Podcast. I'm Lindsay Wallace, and I will be your host for today's episode on embodied solidarity. I'm joined by Gina Siliberto. Say hey, Gina. Hello. <laughs> show notes for today's episode can be found on Instagram, which is Upside Down Podcast. Our show is 100% listener funded, and we have a lot of things that we'd like to do. So if you'd like to throw a couple bucks our way to keep the podcast free and free of ads, you can visit us at patreon.com slash upside down podcast or on our website there is a give button in the upper right hand corner that's upside down podcast.com our guest today is dr larisha hawkins scholar political science professor and activist teaching and researching at the nexus of politics race ethnicity and religion and has been called a modern day rosa parks by the reverend jesse jackson in a December 10th, 2015 Facebook post, she declared her intention to don a hijab in embodied solidarity with Muslim sisters throughout Advent. The post initiated a national and international conversation about the nature of God and the possibilities for multi-faith solidarity in a time where Islamophobia, xenophobia, religiously motivated hate crimes, and racism are more prolific than any time in history. It also led to a documentary film called Same God that we'll be talking about during our interview. So, uh, Larisha, thanks for joining us today. Thank you guys for having me. I'm glad to be with you. Thanks. Can you take us back to December 10th, 2015 and walk us through your decision to wear a hijab for Advent? Sure. So, December 2015, if you... um, I think some of us have forgotten because the last several years have been such a blur, like in some ways they've Mm -hmm. gone really quickly and in some ways it's felt like forever. But um, late November, early December 2015 was the wake of the San Bernardino shootings. And if you don't remember those, if some of the listeners don't recall, there were a couple, uh, there was a couple literally, um, of Islamic extremists, people who use Islam as a front for their own kind of political and ideological extremism, because Islam is a religion of peace. And at the time, I was a professor at Wheaton College in Illinois. And Wheaton is um, an evangelical Christian college. It's also um, a very rigorous liberal arts institution. And What's interesting is Wheaton was founded as a stop on the Underground Railroad. Um, So it was an institution that was founded out of an abolitionist fervor and, in fact, was the first college in the state of Illinois to admit a black man um, as a full-fledged student, not as a, you know, you get to sit in the segregated row, right? And I say that because... Mm. I teach at the intersection of, as you mentioned in the bio, race, religion, politics, democracy. Um, And I teach my students, I was teaching my students in uh, peace and conflict studies class at the time that I was, um, that I had just founded that program there at Wheaton. I teach them to actually embody the things that we talk about. So at a Christian college, you get to talk about not just justice in the governmental sense of the word. Um, You get to talk about 
justice in the scriptural sense of the word. And so for me, one of my great delights was bringing those together in a way that was natural. And so when San Bernardino happened, I had two students come to me who had written of their own accord um, an editorial to the Washington Post condemning the response of some evangelicals to those shootings, which was to condemn Islam as a religion in toto, but then also to condemn Muslims in particular. And one of the people who had done that was Jerry Falwell Jr., who is the president of Liberty University in Virginia. And Jerry Falwell Jr. was speaking in chapel in the days after the San Bernardino shootings. And he said to students in chapel, and Liberty is a large university. So chapel is, imagine a large basketball stadium that seats like 10,000 people. That's chapel at Liberty. Mm -hmm. And he says in front of chapel, which is recorded and broadcast live, he said, if Muslims walked in here like they did at that center, and if everyone was packing what I have in my back pocket, meaning a gun, and then he motions to pull it out and kind of has a trigger finger. And he says, if they walked in here, we could end, if everyone was packing what I'm packing, if they walked in here, we could end them before they end us and pointed his finger mm -hmm. like a gun. And so a Christian is not a pastor, he's a lawyer, but a Christian college president inciting Christians to holy war. And so that's what motivated my students mm -hmm. and what motivated me to think, um, well, what in this moment, how am I embodying solidarity, embodying justice, um, like the Sermon on the Mount, like Jesus calls Christians to do? Um, at the same time, I had, and that, that editorial was penned, it was picked up by the Washington Post. Um, I didn't have any input, they had written it, and I was like, this looks great, you guys, you don't need my blessing, and you shouldn't change a word. Um, it was amazing, calling white evangelical leaders to task for not condemning Jerry Falwell Jr.'s comments. Another student came to me and said, um, obviously, Wheaton is a, is a place where students have a lot of access to their professors. So a separate student came to me and she said, <laughs> Professor Hawkins, in light of these things, right, because this is the time, she said, um, I would like to do a massive campaign to get college women across the U.S. to wear a hijab on the airplane home because it's December. So masses of college students are going to be flying home for break. Um, for holiday break. And that was her goal. And I said, well, let me talk to some friends of mine who work at the Council on American Islamic Relations to get their blessing to basically to see if women who are not Muslim wearing the hijab would be considered defiling of the concept of hijab. Um, would that be considered? Um, I mean, we didn't use these words, cultural appropriation, would that be considered somehow unclean, right? Um, and how would that right. be received yeah. by the preponderance of Muslims in the U.S.? So I have a friend that um, I used to invite to speak to my religion and politics classes at Wheaton. And he also served at the Council on American Islamic Relations as the government relations director. Spoke with him. He called back. He said, we love this. We love the spirit that you guys are doing this in. Because there was a lot of back and forth between me and them. Like, are you sure we want to do this appropriately? Well, as it happened, um, I didn't hear back from my student after I got the permission, but that evening, which was December 10th, 2015, I went home and I wrote a Facebook post and it said something like, 
I don't love my Muslim neighbor because she or he is American. Um, I love them because we're formed with the same primordial clay and I stand in human solidarity with them. I said, secondly, um, I love my Muslim neighbor because they, like me, are people of the book. And as Pope Francis stated recently, Muslims and Christians worship the same God. Um, that was the essence of the post. I called it embodied solidarity in the way that Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says, if your neighbor asks for your coat, give them your cloak, um, that we would put ourselves in one another's shoes. Um, and that meant in that moment to support Muslims um, and Muslim women being these visible kind of targets of violence and vitriol at that moment um, were the visible ones. And so it was just a way of standing with um, our religious siblings and um, but all hell broke loose from what was intended to be a show of human solidarity, primarily human solidarity, but secondarily Christian um, or religious solidarity from a Christian to a Muslim. And, um, and that became that. And so it, yeah. it kind of took off from there. And that's a long way of saying um, that was the context, because I think the context is important. And also Donald Trump had said in light yeah, of yeah. the San Bernardino shootings, that's when Donald Trump, candidate Donald Trump, announced a Muslim ban. Like December 7th, 2015, mm -hmm. Donald Trump announced nationally that if he became president, he would ban Muslims from entering the United States. And he did. So that was, that was yeah. the intention was yeah. just human solidarity. Yeah. And to say that all hell broke loose is really putting it lightly. And I'm going to ask you about that in a minute. But what I want to hear first from you is how did that experience of wearing the hijab, because you did, you wore it throughout Advent. How did that impact your spiritual experience of Advent in a way that you, you know, you hadn't encountered Advent before? Sure. Advent is a time that I see as a time of um, preparing, um, you know, those 40 days, that, that very biblical number of 40. Um, Jesus spends 40 days in the wilderness, um, the 40 days um, that we prepare for Christ's coming, um, the incarnation and um, the eminence of God, God with us being present in, in the body of Jesus, the first Adam. Well, I'm a professor. I'm in mm -hmm. academia and I haven't sent Christmas cards in at least 15 years because it's the busiest <laughs> time of year for academics. And so, um, so mm -hmm. I just can't get my stuff together enough to focus. Not that cards are the essence of Christmas, right? But it's just emblematic in my life of the <laughs> fact that um, I kind of drop everything to focus on giving finals, grading final exams. Um, it's usually a time of the year that, because I've taught primarily um, at small schools and, and even at UVA, where I, University of Virginia, where I am now, um, you know, having smaller classes, I have my students over for brunch. And so the things I'm doing that time of year um, don't actually revolve around the Christian calendar. And so when I penned mm -hmm. that Facebook post that eventually went crazy viral, I was doing it um, in a twofold way. 
Um, the wearing of the hijab was one thing, but what I did that my student who approached me didn't talk about doing was I decided this is going to be an act of Advent devotion for me. So we often think about Lent um, as a season of devotion of either, uh, some people think about it as giving up something, but um, a very good friend of mine in college said she thought about it as um, taking on new disciplines. And so I wanted to think of wearing literally a scarf on my head as a time of spiritual discipline, of focusing on Advent, um, the coming of Christ as, as a discipline in the same way that, with the same seriousness that I take not eating chocolate at Advent or something like that, right? Um, and I say the not mm -hmm. eating chocolate because that's the extent sometimes to which I think we even trivialize um, these seasons of longing and desire, um, these seasons that we're supposed to be focusing on the mystery, the divinity, the humanness um, of Jesus. And so I wanted to take it seriously, not just have a hijab on my head as a woman of religious privilege, because I'm a Christian, right? So in that sense, no one could determine whether I was a Christian, mm -hmm. you know, unless they knew. Most people who saw me were going to think I'm a Muslim. And so I thought this has to be a period of intense spiritual devotion um, because I didn't know what was going to be coming my way. And um, I was committed to that, but I was also committed to focusing on the fact of my own spiritual journey as perhaps intersecting with those of my Muslim sisters in ways that I couldn't predict or know. And so it gave it a different kind of intensity. It gave... Um, gave, yeah, Advent a different kind of intensity. And it also gave my school calendar a different kind of focus than I normally have. I mean, honestly, my mom used to fuss at me because I never put up, I don't own a Christmas tree. I, I never put one up. If I get one, it's a little sage tree from Trader Joe's and I hang candy canes on them, you know, and that's about it. <laughs> I decorate to some extent with like, yeah, tabletop trees, you know, ceramic things and stuff of that nature, but never an actual tree. So, um, so again, it, it just gave me a new, a new sense of focus and in a good way um, for someone who tends to gloss over yeah. um, those aspects that I think are spiritually rich and meaningful. Yeah. Larisha, I'm like so fascinated with this story. And when I've heard it in the past, I wondered um, what went through your mind in the time when you were discerning whether or not to wear it? Like, I know you said you contacted some Muslim friends. Um, were you like, were you nervous about like, were you, cause I wonder if you went through some of the questioning that folks then went through when they saw your post. Hmm. Um, so I, I think that, yeah. So number one, for me to say, I called people. Um, to talk on the phone multiple mm -hmm. times. I hate talking on the phone. So number one, I was real serious about it. I was like, <laughs> oh, I have to talk on the phone to people I have to be nice to besides my family. You know, I don't have to be nice to them. Um, so <laughs> the fact that I picked up the phone in my office, called people, um, then, eat with, you know, had this ongoing <laughs> email. I'm also bad about like responding to email very quickly. And um 
there was a moment, and I don't remember the exact day, maybe the day before, two days before, where um, my colleague at the Council on American Islamic Relations, you know, when he said, you know, you have our blessing, I emailed back and I said, you know, I just, I think maybe this is mm-hmm. not the right thing to do. And then he added, he said, you know, we, Larisha, we want you to know you've got our blessing. We even want to make it educational. And I was like, well, no, <laughs> duh. Why didn't I think of this as the professor and all of this? And like I said, I just, like I said earlier in that long diatribe, sorry, I'm a professor. I tend to answer long windedly. Okay. So you're, you're, you know, listeners will have to forgive me, but I mentioned briefly that I had started a peace and conflict studies program. So he said, why don't we just make this part of your peace and conflict and have some Muslim Mm. sisters who wear the hijab, some who don't, um, and your students and yourself who wear the hijab during Advent have a panel to talk about the various um, kind of religious and political intersections, what it was like for them wearing the hijab. So they suggested keeping a journal of our experiences, um, Mm especially in the airport, because TSA was really targeting, um, you know, people who looked Muslim. Um, so people wearing mm-hmm. the hijab for sure. And then, mm-hmm. um, you know, people um, with brown skin and dark hair. So it was, um, it was really that it was really that that convinced me. And they even said, we want, you know, NBC, uh, CBS News locally, mm-hmm. we want them to do a story on it. So they actually were really excited as I was like, I want to be honoring and respectful of your community. How can we support you in other ways? And they're like, no, please wear it. And so that was the mm. end. That's what mm-hmm. convinced me. That's what was going through my mind was really being respectful um, of my Muslim brothers and sisters who were literally receiving in their own bodies the vitriol of a country that was always under the surface but was beginning to come out in 2015. So I like to say about like what we are seeing now in the current political season, the writing was already on the wall back then. Um, And so what concerned me was not any physical harm against me. Um, I'm a black woman. So the reality is my body is always a target um, of people's hate. Um, it's always been a site of political contestation. Um, I don't have to open my mouth before people have decided who I am and what I'm about. Um, you know, because I'm the intersection of these two despised things, right? Um, womanness and blackness. And so it wasn't anything Mm -hmm. new. Mm -hmm. It wasn't going to be, it wasn't going to be a damn thing I hadn't experienced before in my life. So I, I honestly, and, and I don't say that in a way of like, I was naive or, you know, I was just like, it's just going to be another day as a black chick in America, except I have something on my head. So that, which yeah. is not to denigrate what Muslim women experience on a daily basis, right? Clearly I was wearing this for a short time. I, what I'm trying to say is I understood that there could be a bodily price to pay but I think being a black woman prepared me for that in a way that that wasn't that wasn't the thing that was top of head for me. The thing that was top of head for me um, was being as respectful as possible to my Muslim brothers and sisters in a time where um, where again uh, they were they were under attack. So 
So that's really what was going through my mind yeah. at the moment um, was was just how to how to act in a way. And I wasn't thinking this at the time, but you know, later on in in the academy, we often talk about our bodies, um, especially race and gender and sexuality and other things as a, as a performance. So my performance of race and gender. I was comfortable enough with who I was that I was ready to take on whatever came my way. I think this is the best way to talk about it. So, mm. yeah, that's good. Thanks mm-hmm. for sharing that. One of the things that um, one of your colleagues uh, from Wheaton in the film said that the audience for you was Muslim mm-hmm. women. And I, I think that's kind of what you're saying now. And what I love about the, difference between solidarity and proximity like I think in our culture right now at least in the circles that I'm in people talk a lot about proximity right so like if you don't understand racism like just get proximate to some black folks or if you don't understand um, homophobia like you just need to get proximate to some LBTGQ Mm -hmm. people and if proximity were the answer then like men wouldn't still be sexist right like they're around us all the time they still have these these ideas happening in their heads and the way that we're treated and all that so I just um I don't know I just love that comment that the audience for you was the Muslim women and that is the difference between being for somebody and being with them and you were with them in their struggle and with them um you know in a lot of ways at that time and still today in their suffering um so what I wonder is what have you learned from Muslim women either since then or in that process that maybe you didn't know before mm-hmm. or hadn't experienced? Um, well, one of the things that it's a good question. Um, one of the things I realized is that most of my Muslim friends were men mm-hmm. and it just, mm. it just happened that way that I served on um, a board in Chicago it was an ecumenical board and two of my colleagues on the board were Muslim men, um, both men of color, um, one from Turkey, uh, one of Turkish descent, and then one um, who grew up in the black Christian church, but converted to Islam as a teenager. So he grew up in a Christian family, which has really been an interesting um, journey for him, but then also for me, as someone who grew up in the Christian background, we had a lot in common. Uh, We were good friends. Then um, in graduate school, um, two of my closest friends in my cohort in graduate school were Muslim, one from Morocco and one from Dallas, Texas. And so one one Shia, one Sunni. And um, I, I didn't ever reflect on the fact that I didn't have any women friends who were Muslim until this happened. And what obviously very quickly I I started, or or not obviously um, gained a lot of Muslim women friends. One of the things that I feel like I've learned most from the Muslim women that I've encountered is that, um, I mean, at a macro level, the similarities between a lot of, Sometimes, um, like within Islam, just like within Christianity, you have these kind of ethnic sects. So if you go to the Midwest of the United States, you have all of these like Swedish Christians who form, you know, these Protestant denominations, um, et cetera, et cetera. So similarly within Islam, a lot of the culture um, revolves around food. 
which is very similar to the black church in the United States. So the mm-hmm. first thing I learned was like, which sounds somewhat, um, you know, just rather simple, but it's that we're more alike than different. Um, that hospitality is such a central facet yeah, yeah. of what it means to be Muslim um, and to exist in Muslim communities in the United States. Um, I've also learned from being um, being more friends with more Muslim women how remarkably strong Muslim women are and have to be. Um, women in the hijab, women not in the hijab, because their life is in some ways the internal battle that I've always had to prove that I deserve to be, you know, in the places I am, whether that's from the time I was young in the gifted and talented class that the school had conveniently left me and my sisters out of, right. To prove that you had to be there. Like you just know as a black kid, like mm-hmm. silently without your parents telling you, you got to prove that you deserve to be there. That Muslim women have mm-hmm. to prove that on multiple fronts too. Right. Like, that they are good citizens, um, that they are women who have brains, that they're not owned by their husbands. Um, so I, what I've learned from them is um, is how they navigate that struggle and how they do so through um, that they, they enter that kind of wound that's cast upon them by narrow-minded um, people in this country by relying on their faith um, in the same ways that people in my community do sometimes if they come from a background of faith. And so um, I've learned how similar our struggles are in a way that I wouldn't have ever realized before, that um, that these are women paving, um, paving like the way for our rights because they've had to fight at every turn for every ounce and modicum of respect they get. And they remind me of their, of my grandmother because of in general, the grace and dignity they display while speaking up strongly and proudly and strongly. So, um, so I, I, I just think that I've learned um, a lot about being a feminist from Muslim women. And I, and I, I can say that given that I've internalized scripts, colonial scripts that I need to root out that for whatever reason, it shocked me to find that almost all of the the Muslim women I've gotten to know mm-hmm. are just feminists, whether they stay at home with their kids all day, they're, they're strong women. Um, and that, um, believe it or not, has been yeah. the blessing. And I've been blessed by them in many ways and um, held them up as examples Um you know, in the time, since the time that I've been blessed to know so many Muslim women, so. Yeah, Mm, that's good. You have said that embodied solidarity is a form of death, and I don't want to exploit the pain that you went through, but as much as you're interested in sharing, I just wonder what died for you in your taking the stand of embodied solidarity? This is a great question which is a word professors use as filler when they're trying to think, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> it really is a good question. Um, it's hard. It's like when your students throw something back at you that you said. It's um, on the, it's on the mm-hmm. one hand, it's really humbling and it makes you think like, 
where was I at that moment? And what was I thinking when I said that? And I do Mm -hmm. um, believe embodied solidarity is a form of death. And I always say it's to the death. And I feel like I used to talk, I used to say that a lot more in the year or two after I left Wheaton. And I've said it less and less recently, not because I don't still believe that, but because it scares people a lot. I mean, I, I literally had a good friend say, I would, I would, I wish you would yeah. stop saying that. And I said, it makes people uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And I mean it in the way that I believe Jesus cross is a bloody cross. And the problem for Protestants is the cross is empty. And what I love about the crucifix, not having grown up in a Catholic tradition, is that it's Jesus is on the cross and it's a bloody cross and the sacrifice is recognized. And there's something beautiful about Mm -hmm. thinking of, you know, I mean, growing up as a Baptist in the book of the Bible Belt, people always talk about um, discipleship as carrying your cross. And it's literally a cross that they keep in their back pocket. Um, That's the imagery you get of like, well, if I have this cross in my pocket, I won't drink or, you know, smoke or have sex before marriage because those are the worst things you Mm. can do in the world. If I have this little cross that I bought at the Christian bookstore in my pocket, this will remind me. But the cross is a bloody cross. And um, I think that what embodied solidarity as a form of death means, it certainly does mean dying to something like the notion that tenure defines Mm. me, right? I had tenure. Mm which is the Holy Grail for professors, and I don't have it anymore. Um, To die to the idea that being a professor defines me. And I've never been someone who thought like, oh, these things are the core, what I do is who I am. I mean, I'm a being, I'm not a doing, right? Um, And I think that so much of how American culture, U.S. culture shakes out, um, it, it, it comes down to you are what you do, you know? Um, healthcare, like whether or not you have healthcare mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. about whether or not you happen to be connected to the labor market in a way that your labor is valuable yeah. enough that your employer offers you yeah. that, that thing that should be a universal right that everyone has freaking access to right and what i realize is um Mm -hmm. now i am like my contingent faculty friends who are adjunct teaching classes again at two thousand dollars a pop if they want to have any kind of a living wage that how many classes do they have to teach right if they want to have health care they're they're on medicare Mm -hmm. right because Uh, excuse me, Medicaid, because all of a sudden they qualify for food stamps and other things. And I'm like, you know, this is a form of death to myself, which is ultimately what I think Christianity is about. It's death to the self. um, And it's, it's, it's this idea that our lives are radically hidden with Christ and God, um, as Colossians says, and, um, it's dying to me and living unto Jesus and the Jesus way. And that's a radical movement and it's a radical movement to death. 
that's the end. And so I think that U.S. Christians are coddled into believing that, um, you know, people talk about theologically or eschatologically um, when eternal life begins. Is the kingdom now? Is it future? Is it both? Right. Um, If we were a theological podcast, we could get into that. Um, I think most Americans are convinced the kingdom is now and this is as good as it gets. Go for the gusto, the Protestant ethic and the spirit of capitalism and embodied solidarity is like death to all that. Because what I know is when I hit when I hit, you know, post on that Facebook thing, I didn't know that it would end in me um, no longer having the career that I thought I had secure, right? Literally in my back pocket, like the cross that so many Christians have, but it, the poof, it's gone. <laughs> That's a death. So it was a lot of forms of death. It was a social death. I lost friends. Mm-hmm. Um, I mentored students that I haven't heard from, right? Um, I lost my sense of place. Chicago mm-hmm. has been my home um, for most of my adult life, and I don't live there anymore. And Charlottesville, Virginia is a good place to land. I've landed in the place of Nazi rallies, neo-Nazi rallies, and um, the rebirth of white supremacy. Hmm. What was never gone, but you get what I mean. So, I mean, but death is, um, as a a good friend of mine says, who's a theologian, you know, to, to the believer in the Jesus, death is just another day. It's just another day on the calendar. And that's how I want to live my life. I want to live my life um, in a way that I am radically poured out for the things that are good and true and beautiful about God and the universe and about the people that um, God has created in God's own image. And um, that's, that's all I know. And that's all I know how to be. We have to be radically for others. And that means being willing to die for our neighbor and and to be be willing to die those other forms of death too, right? Yeah. The social death. Because I don't think we can say we're willing to die for people unless we're willing to die to those other things, right? Those other things are trivial and superficial. And if I can't die to mm-hmm. those things, then I really, I really question whether... I'm willing to die for my nephew. I don't have kids, but I'm willing to die for my nephew. I'm willing to die for these students that I teach, you know? Um, I'm not sure I can say that unless I've been able, willing to experience the death of some other things, willingly and unwillingly, right? As I hear you talk about this, I just, I can't help but wonder, do you regret it? Like it changed everything and you had no idea beforehand. I have zero regrets. And I say that as um, a perfectionist, one on the Enneagram, who, um, for all you people who like the Enneagram, who thinks and rethinks everything she's ever said, like lie awake at night in the bed thinking, oh, if I had only said it this way. And that has been all my life, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, even though I talk for a living in front of students every day, I still have mm-hmm. days where I'm like, oh, I wish I had said this, where I, you know, question how I handled a particular situation. And so as someone who, whose default is to think in those ways, 
Um, I have no second thoughts about what I wrote. You know, the Facebook post was very carefully written. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember where I was sitting when I did it. Somehow I literally, it literally posted at um, 10 p.m. on December 15th. And, um, and I just think there are few things in my life that I am uncertain about. And that is one of them. Wow. That, 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 um, that it was, it was my professional kind of expertise, my personal passion. It was my pedagogy. Like I teach students to embody justice. That's what I'm teaching them. And one reason that embodied solidarity made sense, I had started teaching like um, about a year or two before I, I started saying something like we need to be embodied question marks, right? Um, we need to live our lives in a way that we're always not just speaking truth to power because, well, that could just be in some people's minds sending a letter to their senator via email, right? Um, speaking truth to power looks like the prophets putting mm-hmm. themselves in a the position to be ridiculed and outcast, right? Um, to risk something, um, to be the whistleblowers, the ones who are threatened because they're dismantling the power structures and systems, um, sometimes mm. from within, actually, and sometimes from without. And so I, I, can, I can say unequivocally that in a strange way, and this isn't, this isn't revisionism, this is, you know, Larisha the perfectionist saying there's not one jot or tittle that I would change about the email post and nothing that I would change um, in the aftermath of that. Now, that doesn't mean I'm perfect, that I said or did everything perfectly in the aftermath of that. But what I am saying is, um, in a churchy way, it was an ordained thing, right? It's not something, it's mm-hmm. something certainly I chose to do, but it wasn't, and I, I don't think I've ever actually said that out loud about <laughs> it, but it was something that um, I was inspired to do and something that I was moved to do. And it was something that I do, you know, teaching is a form of accountability to live the way, right? To live into my Mm -hmm. own expressions. Um, I get to sit and think about shit all day that a lot of people don't get to sit and think about. Um, And as a one on the Enneagram, I am fairly disturbed and perturbed and yeah. about the injustice in the world, right? This isn't a show about the Enneagram, but it's something <laughs> that, that moves me. It pushes me. I, I can't be someone who doesn't do what I teach. And it was, a, it was a way of embodying the things that I believe to be true yeah. about God and the universe and the Jesus, the Jesus of a radical movement of ragamuffin followers and I want to be one of them. And I want to move into the mysticism and the mystery, um, the uncertainty that is mm. life. And to do that, like as to the previous question, we have to be willing to move into death because that life-death nexus is inseparable. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's that's what it is. Mm. That's so good. Another thing that you've said that I love is that you believe that Christians are a wilderness people. And to to Gina's question, you said, I'm willing to be exiled again and again and again. And I wonder for you, um, like, what keeps you going and where do you see hope? What is it that 
puts that like fire in you and that allows you to say that like I'm willing to go there again and again um I really think the fact of the matter is what gives me hope continues to be this model of a Jesus who lived a life fairly um well, fairly isn't the right word. I'm trying to avoid using all this capitalistic language, but mm-hmm. sold out, right? Like mm-hmm. literally sold out to this idea that that to be is to be radically for others. Uh, to live is to die. Um, and that's a hopeful image to me because it brings together the tragic along with the tragic now along with um, the present and future hope. Right. And so I've begun to talk about, um, I gave a talk one time and it was entitled tragic hope. When I think about the prophets, um, when I think about, you know, yesterday was MLK Day, I know this won't be airing anytime this week, but thinking about MLK as, as a modern day prophet um, of righteousness and justice, which in my mind are inseparable. You can't say you're righteous if justice isn't in the midst, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so when I think about those modern day prophets, they're always gesturing towards um, a present and a future. And part of the responsibility of the now is not just maintenance, it's the cultivation and creation of, of goodness and beauty so that the future might receive it um, and so that the present might usher it forward. And so, um, so as I'm thinking about being exiled, I think about what's what's the provision of exile? Um, the provision of exile is manna. There's always bread in exile. There's always hope in exile, and it comes from unexpected places. And I think that that vision of God's children in the wilderness not seeing um, or even rejecting, literally rejecting and complaining about the beautiful provision of God's hand that they didn't even have to work for. That's a hopeful image to me. It's, it's, a, it's an instruction about humanity and what we see and what we fail to see. And what keeps me hopeful is, is just the vision, the sight, um, the longing to see the beauty that is before me. And so one of the things I, I often do is um, I think art has just become so much more part of who I am in my practice. And mm-hmm. I've begun calling myself an artist because we're all artists. Um, we're all creators of beauty. And I'm trying to continue to live into that because art gives me hope, right? Um, seeking out beauty yeah. is what continues to sustain my vision for uh, the future, um, for what is, again, good and true about the universe. And I mean that in a very holistic way um, about the earth. Um, and sometimes that's just the faces of children. 
um, trying to see the spirituality that I see in like the wisdom of, of like babies and two-year-olds and three-year-olds and five-year-olds and eight-year-olds and um, 13-year-olds. And, um, and some of that, sometimes it's film, sometimes it's, and you know, and so not to segue to the film in any way, but seeing the power of a documentary, <laughs> right, to bring about conversation and sustain hope has just really surprised me, you know? Um, and so yeah. I'm trying to press into things that give me hope and look for what I like to call the liturgies of life, um, the regular patterns, um, the things that evoke the Psalms and scripture that are songs, like the, the things of, of my every day that literally are singing the beauty of creation, sometimes in regular patterned ways and other times in irregular ways that just jump out at me as interjections and insertion points, like screaming at me, like this world is good. And that's not the perspective that I imbibed um, as a good Christian girl who read her Bible, um, the world is bad. People are bad. And so mm -hmm. I'm trying to correct, again, like not only decolonize my thinking in the ways that um, the empire of the United States has taught me, but also in the ways that um, mostly white theology has taught me to think about humanity and the universe and sin. Yeah, that, that's so beautiful. And I, I kind of want to just honor it for a minute. I know in the past you said that it's so easy for Christians to kind of harp on like one line from Psalms and build an entire theology around it or just these like mm -hmm. single isolated lines. Um, yeah, and I just want to honor what you're saying about theology that continues to create itself anew and a God that continues to speak to us, that continues to sing to us and verse that continues to open up for us. I just love that image of evolution so much. Um, and yeah, I, I'm really grateful that you just shared that. Thank you. Thank I'm going to be thinking about that for a while. Yeah, I agree. That is a great segue into the film. Can you share about <laughs> the film and where people can find it and where people can learn more about yeah. you and your so, work? So, Same God Film. Shout out to Linda Midget, the director of the film. Because I um, would love to take credit for the film, but it ain't mine. I'm just in it, you know? Um, <laughs> so Same God Film right mm -hmm. now is being shown at different places at different times um it's been on pbs recently so you might check your local pbs listings um we're on the pbs world station and uh so that's been in rotation since december so again check your local listings because i'm pretty sure through february same god film will be in certain locations and you may be able to still um see it on on demand or something nice. like that depending on what you've got in terms of a package you know everyone's got different stuff these days um and then in addition to pbs we'll be in chicago um end of january there's a website called savinggodfilm.com where you can always keep up with us and in March, um, there's exciting news. We're going to be having a theatrical debut 
in some cities across the country nice. and the distributors are working on ironing out those cities and as soon as i know which is hopefully in the next few weeks i will let you guys know um and you can also find that information on the website and i'm sure there'll be an additional like yeah. media blitz around the film itself um, but it's been exciting we debuted at the la film festival we've been internationally so i was in cork ireland at a film festival we won the jury award for best documentary, which means people in the industry chose Linda's film as the best film out of all the documentaries there. Um, so won that, and that's mm. Gina Davis's film festival, who's like a cult icon actress in my mind. I love her. So many different kinds of roles oh, wow. that she's yeah. played. And so she was there to hand out the award. It was like wild. Um, that is wild. But, um, so, you know, we've had the little red carpet treatment at little small places, but the, which has been fun. But the more amazing part is when we get to screen the film um, and do kind of talk back panels or Q&A. And um, so we still take um, on the website of Same God Film if people want to bring us to their university or to their church. Um, the film, you know, documentaries don't make a lot of money. We're not, um, I'm not making any money on the film. Um, the film itself, um, in order to be theatrically released has to put forth a lot of money. So if people want to contribute to the film project, they can do that. And one way to contribute is by bringing it, you know, because, um, okay. bringing it to your place, houses of worship or local community centers. And it's a kind of film, it's not a religious film in my mind it's really a film while well, it's called same god it's about embodied solidarity and it's about the moment that we find ourselves in and there are a lot of different ways we can yeah. go um from there but um you can support us at samegodfilm.com and on twitter at same god film and on instagram at same god film and if you want to follow me you can just follow me at larisha hawkins on twitter at larisha hawkins also on instagram and I have a Dr. Larisha Hawkins Facebook page as well. So, And for those of us um, who don't have a TV or cable, how can we nudge Netflix um, to get this in front of us? <laughs> you can nudge Netflix after the theatrical <laughs> release. Um, so they want to do the theatrical release before it's streaming, um, available for streaming. And so after the theatrical release in March, it's probably the second week of March, around the week of March 7th, I believe, that the theatrical release is, um, we'll be presenting the film to those streaming companies. And so, yeah, give a shout out to Netflix. Like, hey, I watched this amazing film. Can you pick it up? Or I've been hearing good buzz about this film. Netflix, why don't you pick it up? So, um, yeah. So that would be a good thing to put the bug in the ear of the powers that be. Or if you know someone at the at those organizations to send them a link to the film. So. Mm. Thanks for yeah. asking. Yeah, we'll do that. We'll definitely include all those links in our show notes so that people can um, stay up to date on the film and ways to view it and how we can be supportive in that way. Um, Larisha, thank you so much. This was such a wonderful conversation and um, yeah, we're just really honored that you would spend time sharing your story with us and also um, 
when you were sharing about like why it's worth it and where you find your hope, I just felt like, man, this is a woman who has like caught a glimpse of the kingdom here and now and is like just unbothered by what everybody else has to say about it and is is like in her lane doing her thing. And it's just a really inspiring and awesome thing to like witness and have a conversation with, not necessarily like sit across the table from you and see it, but like to see it play out in the world and to hear you talk about it. It's just, it's a really wonderful thing for all yes, of us thank to be you a part so of much. hearing your story. So thanks so much for spending time with us. Thank you. Thank you all. Thanks for yeah, hosting of course. It's been a privilege to be with you and all the best. I, like I said, I enjoyed listening to Dr. Christina Cleveland, all her wisdom and the good conversation that you guys had. And so blessings on future success and reaching a lot of people and shout out to your audience. Um, We've got some great hosts asking deep questions. Mm, Thank you. You can learn more at UpsideOnPodcast.com or UpsideOnPodcast on Instagram. And you're always welcome to join the Upside Down Together listener group on Facebook. That's where we process through episodes with the lens of God's Upside Down Kingdom. Uh, Thank you so much for listening. Thanks for being with us, Larisha. And we'll see you next time. Thanks so much for joining us for this episode of the Upside Down Podcast. New episodes are released on the second and fourth Tuesday of each month. The Upside Down Podcast is created by Lindsay Wallace, Kayla Craig, Elisa Molina, and Gina Siliberto. Our show notes are written by Lana Smith. Johnny Craig and Tess Malone edit the episodes, and our theme music is Dreamers Act by DJ Sean P. And of course, our monthly patrons make everything possible.